Uh, no one responded to our what are our ten minute topics. So, are are you joking right now? Oh no, I didn't see. Okay, hold on a second. There's like thirty things here. Oh, oh good, <laughs> thank God. Okay. Hey, but I have my own uh, my own topic that I want to start with. So screw everyone else. Okay. Um, what do you think was the best year for movies? For movies. Yeah, in your opinion, what's the best year for movies? Like, mm. like what was the year when like the best movie? Like, wow, that year was the best year for movies. Do you have one in mind? No, I do. Not off the top of my head because you just asked me this. I'm not ready. You seem ready. I don't know. No, hmm. I, I like just I just thought about this in my mind. So. Here's what comes up when you type into Google 19. And listen, I know people might not care about this. I'm exhausted of talking about all of this, about the you know end of all things. We'll get to that stuff in just a bit. No, 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 no. Luke, it has a name now. Did you know that? Oh, it's called McCarrick Gate? <laughs> I wish. It's called The, the Summer, Summer of, of Scandal. Scandal. Is it called Voris Was Right? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Why have you abandoned us? Voris Was Right. <laughs> really, Lord? Your prophet is Michael Voris with that hair? Hey, someone uh, asked Michael Voris's team on Twitter if that really was his real hair, and he responded yes. And I just, I hoped to God it was a Catching Foxes listener. Are you ready to hear what the best year in film was? We're, we're, we're doing 10-minute topics today, everyone, so. Okay. What was the best year in film? So I'm going to propose it was 1994. Okay. Here's what came out. The Lion King, Dumb Dumb and Dumber, The Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, (laughs) Natural Born Killers. Let me scroll Mm. over. That's just the first part. The Crow, Maverick. That was fantastic. Clear and present danger. That was great. Four weddings and a funeral. Let's see what else. Speed. D2, the Mighty Ducks. Need I say more? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Star Trek Generations, the movie where Kirk and Picard are together. The Little Rascals. These drug cartels represent a clear and present danger. How dare you, sir? <laughs> uh,. The oh, Santa Claus. Is, oh, the Santa Claus. Bobo yep, you Gijo. win. Yep. Bobo Gijo. Bobo Gijo. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have used that phrase so many times, and no one knows what I'm talking about. Uh, I've, I've done the same thing as well. Um, let's see. What else? Oh, man, Major... Stargate. I loved Stargate. I enjoyed The original that. movie? That was fun. Yeah. Air, Airheads, that's actually good. That's a fairly entertaining film. Right, right. Reality Bites. I've never really a Street Fighter. Do you remember Street Fighter? I literally just watched a short documentary on the on Street Fighter on YouTube. Hysterical. You went um blown. What's away. his name? Died right after he made that movie. Wait, who died? The the only real actor they had, the guy that played M. Bison. The you know it's really um funny to go back and like see the like the little um, yeah. image for these films because it is typically what's on like video cover or on the poster and you see what film thought they were very important and like people have forgotten like like the yeah. film the paper it has all of like the quotes of how this is like a you know great whatever blah Wait, blah, was, blah 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 was forrest gump this year yes 
Forrest wow. Gump was 94. Really? Forrest Gump and one of my favorite action movies of all time, starring Lay Natalie Portman, Leon the Professional. You ever see The Professional? I did not, but I've heard that's fantastic. Oh, such a weird, like, you feel like it's creepy because it kind of sexualizes a very young <laughs> Natalie Portman. You're like, she's like 12 or 14 or something, and he's a he's a contract killer and he teaches her how to be a contract killer it's a weird movie hmm. angels but i in do want to oh sorry sorry go on right right right. angels in the outfield i do want to say reality bites i'm gonna say it again i'm in that movie i was like nine years old living in los angeles at the gas station the shell gas station we had just gassed up our car we were getting some sunday afternoon brunch and the director of the movie came over to me and said, young man, would you look over at that gas station where we're filming? And then he talked on his little walkie-talkie, and he goes, just keep looking, keep looking, and done. As of right now, you're in the movie. And it's this famous gas station scene. You can see if you watch the trailer. I've never watched the movie because I'm afraid they they cut the part. And apparently it was just a camera scene panning around the outside of the of the gas station. But that's that's my claim to fame. Wait, wait. Wait, you're in Reality Bites? Uh-huh. Luke, did I just tell this? Did you just find this out? No, I, you've never told this to me before, ever. Really? I'm going to ask yeah. the guys in the, in the WhatsApp group if they've, heard, if they've <laughs> heard that before. Oh, yeah, man. And I've never watched the movie because I don't want to be disappointed because then I can't tell that story anymore. Then the story just becomes, hey, I saw them filming Reality Bites. There's, like, some famous gas station scene where she's giving her dad's, like, gas card to people in exchange for cash or something like that. Gomer, that's insane, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what happens when you're living in L.A. To live and die in L.A., Luke. The only thing I have to that that's even, like, remotely cool is I saw them film part of Casino. And it wasn't, they weren't even, like, filming. They were, they were just, like, moving the set around. <laughs> So you saw people moving stuff. Okay. What do you think would be another, like, just off, off, off the top of your head, what do you think would be another good year? Because, like, I think a lot of people thought that 2016 was going to be the best year for movies ever. That really wasn't the case. What about, um, when was Jurassic Park? Uh, Jurassic Park is 93, I believe. Let's see here. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Okay. Let's back up a bit. Let's make the argument for 93, Jurassic Park, Ground, Groundhog's Day, which okay. I arguably would say is one of the oh. top ten films ever made. Put your little hand in mine. <laughs> you, um, with our good friend Cher, you uh, have Schindler's List, which is a fantastic film. You have The Piano, which I never saw, but a guy poops in a tub. You have, I really like the film Philadelphia. I'm not sure it holds up, um, but I remember enjoying that. Plus, it had that cool song the nightmare before christmas tombstone demolition man the fugitive cool mrs doubtfire cool cool running wayne's world 2 own own that great film <laughs> um oh i think like 93 mm. 93's got a good argument hocus hocus pocus rudy um, uh gotcha beat gotcha beat it's all over 1996 we have w- number one the craft Number two, striptease. <laughs> Number three, the hunchback of Notre Dame. 
Number four, uh, Mars Attacks. <laughs> I'm just trying to pick the stupid ones from that year. Actually, uh, this is the, oh, man, Sling Blade, the movie that made Billy Bob Thornton's career. That movie disturbed Which made people think he was deep and not just creepy. That movie just, I remember like me and my aunt watched that. And she was like, ah, this is, this is too much. This is horrible. And I was yeah. like, yeah, this is a little bit weird. I never saw it. Uh, Fargo um, came out in 96. That's a great, great movie. Scream, Jerry Maguire, Independence Day. Oh, oh, here's a topical one. Sleepers, where a bunch of abused boys come back and murder a priest and then lie about it. The, the Summer, Summer of, of Scandal. 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 You know what we're doing, Luke? Hmm. I think it's impossible for me and you right now to pick one of these because... Every one of these movies, or, or many of these movies, is hitting at our nostalgia. Mm, we need this. And so, like, for me, when I see The Rock in 1996, I remember seeing that movie in the theater, and I was in love with that movie. I was 14 years old, saw it with my dad and my brother in L.A., and it was, like, it was amazing. And my brother and my dad were like, oh, God, that was stupid. And uh, but they still kind of liked it. So then I made them go take me to see Independence Day, and I said, "See, wasn't that a great movie?" And they were like, "That movie was terrible." And I was like, "Screw you! This film will define my life. Every time I bump a toy, I'll go, damn it, Dylan!" <laughs> and then every time I see an alien punch him in the face, I'll say, "Welcome to Earth." <laughs> That's what I call a close encounter. Um, okay, can I make the case for 98? I, totally, I, still, oh, I don't I still, know. I think our listeners turned out, tuned out at 93. Okay, yeah, go for it. I, okay, so I still I still think, I, I think that like 94 is is they have the deepest bench, if, if, if you will. There's a lot of good films. But 98, The Truman Show, The Big, the big Lebowski, Saving Private Ryan, Armageddon, Deep Impact, can't can't forget that thin uh, thin red line uh ants and i remember both these films being surprisingly good a bug's life um rushmore the prince of egypt which is actually fantastic blade um my a, kids are listening to the prince of egypt soundtrack right now oh it's, yeah. it's actually so good um uh, bah, 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 bah. what else uh, okay so it's not as deep you also have like rush hour which is more of just like a 90s thing um, the Wedding Singer and the Water Boy, man. Uh, that's all I got now. All right, can't hardly wait. Last that's one, fun. last one, people. Last one. 1999 Esquire's the last great year in movies. Okay, are you ready for this? Ten things I hate about you. Right? Hmm. Yeah. I was... No. Wait. What? Tell me you watched that. Movie. No, that was good. That was that ten was things good. I hate yeah. about you. I, oh, that, that movie film. was great. I wanted to be. I. You know what's weird? I didn't want to be. He. I didn't want to be. Heath Ledger. I wanted to be the like other guy with like the black hair because I thought the girl that he was with. I remember being so in love with her when I was like oh, sixteen. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. You have The Matrix coming out in 1999, but you also have Wild Wild West, a terrible movie with Will Smith. <laughs> that was a great song. Will Smith. Wow. Wow. West. Will Smith. <laughs> Turned down the Matrix to do Wild Wild West, but we got we but we got the song that said Rough Riders. No, you don't want nada. So you got the Matrix, the Blair Witch Project, which was only good the first time you saw it. 
American Beauty, which was popular, but I was in youth group at the time, so that was the demonized film. Oh, The Iron Giant. That's a good. That's supposed to. I, the Iron Giant as an animated movie. That's Toy Story. Office Space. Toy Story Two and Office Space. I was just gonna get and Fight Club. Come on, Fight Club, Office Space, Matrix. Those movies. Uh, but you know what ruins it, right? Big Star Daddy. Wars Episode One. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Actually, okay. Oh I'm, no. I'm, I like Big Daddy. I'm, no, 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 I was, I was just kidding. I want my own ass. I want my own ass. I'm actually <laughs> one of my favorite parties when they go. It's on his fault he can't read. It's about that guy. <laughs> oh, Adam, Adam, I'm Sandler. His jokes are so cruel to people who are um, who have issues. Um, South, South. I, I, I remember I went and saw South Park, and I have never laughed harder at a film in my entire life. <laughs> it was so funny. The, I think '99 might i don't know i think i think like 94 has more of like the bigger films that are known for being good but i think that like 99 has the has the deeper bench boondock saints so i met a man who had a tattoo on his hand and it said very toss and i said can i ask you and he was in my in my office we were chit-chatting about faith and stuff and i said can i ask you is that tattoo from Boone? And he just started shaking his head. Yep. Yep. Or nodding his head, not shaking his head. And uh, I go, it's from Boondock Saints. He goes, it sure is. I love that. He's like, the guy did the tattoo a little bit wrong, but I actually like it better this way. And I said, can I tell you a really funny story about Boondock Saints? He's like, sure. And uh, I pulled out my gun. I just started shooting it in the middle of my church office. And I said, there was a fire fight. That didn't happen. <laughs> but uh, I said, when I was an RA, a resident assistant in, at Franciscan University in the dorm, I was asked by my resident director, Mike Stumpf, if I would create a prayer for the staff that we could all pray. And so I wrote down, I memorized and wrote down the prayer that they say before they murder people in that movie. I wrote it, I even wrote down the Latin in Nomine Patris for the Spiritus Sancti, although they ruined the Spiritus Sancti part. But uh, I wrote, <laughs> and we shall flow a river forth to thee, and teeming with soul shall it ever be. <laughs> and so we prayed that at every gathering for like a month. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so awesome! That's so great. Um, I rewatched that film because I asked one of my favorite podcasts to review it, and I wanted to watch it before they did. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, this film is not as good as I as I remember." It's like an Ed Hardy film, but made in '99. Yeah, yeah. And they reviewed it. Were just like, this is the worst review we've ever been asked to 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 do. Why did we do this? And I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, connect Tarzan with the Lion King. Did you ever see Tarzan? Uh, yeah, once, but I don't remember really anything. Uh, my kids watched it, and so we put it on, and uh, they like it. I've seen a couple things, but you know, they desperately wanted it to be as successful as the Lion King. Yeah, but. Phil Collins does the the music the whole time throughout he's the no whole El- movie. He's no Elton John. No, but it's so off putting. Like, I don't know. It's like it's like it's almost like he's just singing about what's happening on screen, like emotionally. And he's just like, oh, "Okay, buddy, I, I get it. You can stop." I, I mm, yeah. They just had one decent song from the whole soundtrack that I kind of remembered when I was. Younger, I guess I was in high school at the time when it came out, but it was a big deal when the movie came out. But yeah, it's like the kids, the kids a baby, and his parents get eaten by a tiger or something, and you're like, oh shit. 
It's a human family. I'm okay if it's an animal family, but now it's a human family getting eaten. <laughs> There's blood everywhere. Bits of brain matter scattered all over the treehouse. That's not true. Ten minute topics. 18 minutes and 22 seconds. What three books, Catholic or otherwise, this is a great question, that have had the greatest influence on your own discipleship. I'm a Lutheran pastor who is taking my church council through forming intentional disciples. So I love hearing your book recommendations. Okay. One, don't do it. Just Sorry. Actually, do do it, but hire us to come out and do it it with you. You're welcome. (laughs) It's cheaper than you think. Anyways. (laughs) Gomer and Luke are cheaper than you think. In fact... Certain advertisers haven't even paid us. <laughs> I keep meaning to ask him if he said it. I always forget. No, no, no. Don't ask them if. Tell them they haven't. There's a difference. Why? Well, it was just like the polite way of being like, hey, was this mail? Did somehow like we miss this? It happens. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to move this thing over here. Um, okay. So what are your three oh, books? My three books, Catholic or otherwise, that have had the greatest influence on my own discipleship. Hmm. <clears throat> Man, that's really hard. I think, I mean, Forming Intentional Disciples, I tell people, is the most important book written in the last 10 years in the Catholic Church. Um, I think probably Jesus of Nazareth by Pope Benedict. Um, that's, a, that's a big one. I'll do, well, let's just go back and forth so we can give each other a little bit more time to think about it. Okay, so my, so let me say my first one. I'm actually going to agree with you about the Jesus of Nazareth, but because you've already mentioned that, I'm not going to say that one. So I'm going to start off with, this is a classic Luke, and it would be Blue Like Jazz. Uh, that was the, f- one of the. F- um, is that Donald Miller? Yeah, I, I, that, I, that was a book that I had to read when I read it. It, um, it was actually I was saying over at fan of the podcast and and my uh, Oleg Rooker label buddy Dave Vogrens. I was at uh, his house uh, doing my doing my internship. He had it, and I and I, I, I read it, and it was exactly what I needed to hear. Uh, it that that book is um, uh, that will always be in my top three. What's it about? <laughs> um, so it's, it's really a bunch of essays. On this guy, just like reflecting on how he really came to become a like deep rooted Christian, and how going from you know really someone who's kind of steeped in even in evangelical culture who ask the question, "Is this really real?" while at the most liberal college in the country, and how he experienced God there, and how he saw. God really I think it's it's like ultimately about how we saw God in the little things in life in really small concrete ways and how he learned I mean I have not read I have not gone back and read this book in about probably 10 years or so so uh, this could be wrong but I think from what I recall the like the like the best part of the book is when he says he really hates jazz and he sees a jazz player just out in the street playing and it's when just like God clicked for him because he always felt like, because he, because he, he never really liked, really liked the results, and he thought that he, that was part of his anger with God was that he felt God never really like resolved anything. It was everything just kept like I'm going and going, and I think he kind of realized that it's more about the experience and the like and like and like like movement 
of of all of that and you know really taking this thing that's so kind of like basic and creating something like beautiful out of out of it that is just like beyond itself almost and it like and like god kind of just started to like all all of the questioning he had was still i think he still had them but god kind of then clicked if that makes sense so it's 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 a really if if you are the artsy type um you know, if you're the kind of person that like enjoy, like, if you like enjoyed Wild at heart, but it never really hit you the way it did others, read Blue Like Jazz. It is, it is fantastic. All right, my second book. I've actually talked about it before on the show. We actually gave it away as a surprise to one of our guests uh, or one of our um, Facebook fans or whatever. It was, uh, it is uh, After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre. The book. Uh, if you're an audiobook person. It just came out uh, maybe two months ago on audible.com. I freaking love that book. I've listened to it three or four times now. It's about a 12-hour, 14-hour read or hear, whatever you say. Um, it's great. It is a great book. The reason why I love it is it's philosophy. It's a former Marxist who was wondering, and I think I've given this description for it, so please forgive me, but essentially he used to be a Marxist. And then he watched all these Marxists who turned against Stalin after Khrushchev released all this information about what Stalin had done. And all these Marxists suddenly critiqued Marxism from the standpoint of classical liberalism, which Marxism stood outside. So it's like, how, how can these people step from one entire moral scheme and vision into another, in fact, into it, its opposition, and then just be like, oh, yep, now I'm critiquing you from this point. So he embarked on this project to try to understand it, and in trying to understand it, it led him to realize that all of modern morality is essentially we're broken. We use the same words, but they have different meanings. They're connected to different goods and virtues and rules and all this stuff. And he said uh, that essentially you got to back up before the Enlightenment, and uh, you got to see that Aristotle in all of its Christian, Jewish, and Muslim kind of backgrounds uh created this one moral schema from which everyone was kind of reasoning through and with uh especially the nicomachean ethics not his later um his later ethics but uh and it was so important because uh he begins to critique modernity from this aristotelian perspective and i the more i kind of sit in this and read this and revisit it um the more kind of uh so he ruins me for libertarianism. Like, I used to be pretty hardcore libertarian because I thought that Republicans were compromisers with the military-industrial complex. Now, I don't know if you know this, but a military-industrial complex is not a dig on the military, right? It's actually the military-industrial congressional complex. It's the whole system set up during World War II to fight the Nazis. And then after the Nazis were defeated, it endured under the threat of Soviet Russia— but essentially, it was the way congressmen got money flowing into their state. And that's why there's more military bases than we need, more Navy boats than the Navy needs or asks for. It's because it's in the hands of dollars in corporations and, and in Congress. Um, and weapons are always big money, as The Last Jedi pointed out. Uh, <laughs> so that book allowed me, prevented me from going full libertarian uh, and critiquing it from a view that I think is correct and the cool thing is about this author was this author went from marxism 
to Christianity to Catholicism to, you know, he's a hardcore Thomist. And uh, he is a fascinating writer. And, uh, yeah, and I love him. I love the stuff that he does. And so After Virtue for me was about virtue formation uh, in a way that, like, he he blows up. Like, he starts with the Greek mythology and uh, Homer, the understanding of justice under Homer mm. at the time of Homer's mm. writings. And he ties him into the Japanese morality plays and medieval passion plays. And because he's he dives into history because he has that Hegelian past by being a Marxist, history is very important. And sociology is very important in order just to begin to do philosophy. So I just, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm in love with him. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very, I've read um, bits and pieces of it, but it's something that I keep coming back to over the years and it keeps getting brought, brought back up. I think it's, it's an important book for people who are, are in ministry and, and especially people who like to um, think um, deep about these, these things. It's a very important read. Um, no. So I'm, I'm going to go with another book that I've talked about before on the podcast, but it really, I mean, I, it's pretty important within my, within, my, within my own life, and that is Simplicity by um, Mark Solomon. Um, he was the lead guy from a band called Stavesacre, uh, which was a uh, like kind of like a um, – they were like the band that all of the people who really like liked music – and all of the people in bands really liked in the like late '90s Christian rock scene. Very, very, very good band. And it was this book is about why he left the Christian rock scene, like just like the like evils, just like the evils that he that he experienced within that, and just how his own um, discipleship and how his own like faith, um, how being a part of that like both uh, challenged him, kind of destroyed him, and also helped him grow. And it's really a book about your 20s and your early 30s, I think. Yeah, it's it's, just, it's it's a really um, it's a really good book. Uh, I don't think it's a very big book. I don't even know if you can like find it anymore. To to be honest, but it was um, again a book that that for myself was really important to read. You know, he tells a story, and again, I apologize. I think I've told this on the on the podcast before, but it, you know, bears repeating. Of he's he's you know at this concert, and when you're in a Christian band. Kids come up to you, people come up to you all the time, and they really demand these these things out of you that I think we, that we see from Catholic speakers, people who don't know like boundaries, think they know you a lot better than what they actually do, and other things like like that. And this kid comes up to him. This is when his like niece was like, um, so this, this guy on Mark, his, um, his niece was dying, and this kid read about it in some interview or like or like something like that comes up to him at a concert and says god's gonna heal your uh, niece and he's like what and, he's, and this kid goes god wants me to tell you he's gonna heal your niece and then his niece died like three months later Ugh. yeah and it just like like stuff like that really it really convicted me because because it, it's funny like he tells that story while also saying about how god like moved and like worked in his life so it's not him crapping on christians at all but on a certain type of Christ, a certain type of Christianity that's not based in reality, and I'm not saying that like you know healing ministries are bad or that's not real and it, it doesn't happen, but I am saying the arrogance that people have about God sometimes when they really confuse God for themselves or their own their own glory or, or things you know really poor on the discernment skills 
uh, really what I would I think what he's really criticizing is a, is like a real like lack of prudent and charitable Christianity, and what that what that like looks like when you're engulfed in a, a culture where you know everyone knows you, and um, it's it's a really fascinating book. So that is sim the book's called Simplicity by Mark Solomon. Very very good. Well, since we're giving short answers. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh, man. My last one would have to be Irresistible Revolution, a book written by Shane Claiborne, who was on the show, more or less the founder of the new monasticism within the evangelical world. I always think it's so stupid that it's called the new monasticism. It should be called the new mendicantism because they're not living in monasteries. Anywho, anywho, anywho. He very much spoke to me at a time when Luke was there. My now wife, then girlfriend, and I were broken up. She, for some crazy reason, wouldn't get back together with me after the sixth or seventh time I broke I mean, up with who her. Wouldn't wanna, I mean, who like, wouldn't want to get back together with a guy who's trying to like hit on you in front of all of your friends after she said no to an, to an engagement and then proceeds to cry and scream on, on your friend's front lawn? Sorry. Anyways. No, no. <laughs> you're, you're the prize, my friend. You're the prize. <laughs> oh um, luke i am so offended I'm sorry. right now. <laughs> sorry i'm sorry it's so horrible i'm sorry <laughs> oh i literally just listened to an audio clip of us live in cincinnati when you made almost the I same know. exact <laughs> joke in front of 50 of our closest so friends funny because it was such a painful thing for you <laughs> I'm sorry. So I'm much. sorry. That's so. That's like so. That would, that would be like you going like, "Hey, Luke, you, you, you remember when you when you got back together with a like with, with a like one girl again? You remember why you cried yourself to like why you cried yourself yeah. to sleep? You notice how I've never made those comments. <laughs> the only comments I ever make are on things like, "Hey, you should have listened to us and never gotten back together with her." Not just grinding it into your soul. <laughs> Anywho, Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne is about an evangelical Protestant who encounters people like Mother Teresa and St. Francis of Assisi and other stuff and begins to realize that chasing the American dream in terms of consumerist acquisition is destroying our souls. And he does it with such an about face and in such a brilliant drama of his life. There's some stuff that's very hokey, like singing and dancing outside of Wall Street in hopes that all the men would come down from their fancy offices and sing and dance with them. Um, but it's it's just interesting to me how this man uh, has given his entire life over to not just serving the poorest of the poor, but he does rac- racial reconciliation. He does all sorts of stuff. And he does it always from the forefront of this, like, radical community. So... Yeah, so Jesus of Nazareth, After Virtue, and Irresistible Revolution. Irresistible Revolution kept me grounded in the God who is found in the poor. And uh, I've never forgotten both the community and the poverty of his message. And that really does center me on the person of Christ, more, probably more than, not more than Benedict's, but more than After Virtue does, obviously. After Virtue's philosophy. So, um, light, light of the world by like Balthasar. It's, um, 
his reflections on all of the gospel readings, A, B, and C, through, you know, through all of the different years. Um, I got it from the old communications director of the place I may or I may or like may not work, and it's just like really great gift from like like baby boomer to was who was you know full on disciple for his whole life and worked in the archdiocese for you know a good portion of his of his career uh, to like someone who was kind of like new to all of it. It was so so it kind of has like a bit of like hey like this has really helped me. This is going to help you. Because he knew that I was getting into Balthasar, and so light, uh, light, light of the world has profoundly. I mean, I'm talking of like that's been a huge impact on me. It's, I mean, it's just it is like Balthasar at not his best per se, but like he's got some great one-liners in there that are just like holy crap. I'm still trying to come to terms with what this means. So, yeah, light of the world by Hans Urs von Balthasar, old ballsy as we call him here. Old ballsy. ballsy. If you had to choose another name for our podcast, what would it be? Um, I think, oh, you know, that's a really good question. Um, I think uh, if I had to do this show, if we were doing it right now and that that wasn't the name, man, I would probably. I, I think I'd want to call it 1523. Yeah. Yeah, that makes it sense. Just, it just kind of fits. That was a, uh, So anyone who's at Steubenville, that was our project house. 1523. So if you ever if you ever there doing if you want to do a catching foxes pilgrimage, 1523 park park view uh, park view lake circle. Yeah, they were government. They were they were federal government housing that students lived in because it was on Franciscan's property. It was actually the closest residence to the school buildings, which is so bizarre. Yeah, it was. I mean, practically um, on campus for all intents and purposes. Yeah, and I mean the residence halls were like a good half mile, quarter mile. These were right there, <laughs> and uh, yeah, max. Yeah. That's if you're going to Cosmos and Damien. Anywho, the uh, the um, we lived there rent free because we were essentially on welfare. And, and now, 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 one month we paid um, sixty dollars each. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's for, true. What am I thinking? Cable, utilities, and rent. <laughs> And internet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we would call it um, a 1523. Because, I mean, we were on Friends before that, but I think that just kind of like. Yeah. But what kind of friends were we? The kind who shared a room. Yeah, crap, we did. Oh, what a room it was. Just for the record, I know that we have talked, we've, we've told this before, but there are people who hear, who hear our podcast all, all the time. I had this beautiful queen-size bed. Gomer had, like, a shitty futon. I had a chair that turned into a bed. It sure did. So to answer, sure Josh, your, <laughs> to answer your comment, Josh, yes, it would be called 1523. Uh, communion on the hand or tongue. Mark Bollinger gets personal. Um. You know, I am now a tongue guy. That's okay. That's, 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 uh, that's, 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 what a horrible uh, way to oh, phrase that. Especially for us, because people are going to think that was intentional. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> that's not what I meant. Oh, Aaron's going to be so mad. Um, so I've started to receive on the tongue, and it's been very, very cool, and I enjoy it. That being said i think you can go it's easy to go back to a time when 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 i don't think it's the answer to all of our problems gormley no i receive on the tongue i I receive on the hand when the eucharistic minister or extraordinary eucharistic minister is a little unsure of themselves (laughs) this gives me the impression that they don't know what they're doing it still shocks me how 
like rare it is receiving on the tongue when it used to be the universal standard. It was the only way you could receive it. And how people are just like, what do we do now? It's like, oh, I don't know. The thing we've always done. So that's a little annoying. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I receive on the tongue. I've been receiving on the tongue since before it was cool. How do you love someone, any, like, anyone, really, when you don't have those feelings? Uh, someone asked C.S. Lewis that, and his great comment was, essentially, uh, love is one of those things that you do, and then from doing comes the feeling. And, uh, but, you know, like, the problem is, okay. All of us responsible adults know that love is more than a feeling. But love is freaking hard when – it's not hard. It's almost impossible when there's zero reciprocation because if there is reciprocation, there should be some sort of feels there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, what, what, like, you mean if, if it is reciprocated or if it's about – Yeah. If someone is reciprocating your love towards them – in any way, that probably would generate some sort of feels. I don't know. It can be. I mean, it's it, it's just tough. So um, let's okay. So let's take the the example of a spouse. Um, there are a lot of people who had arranged marriages who are very very happy and in love. And those and and a lot of you know I've I've heard stats that like those marriages tend to tend to tend to last longer than ones that aren't because. Um, but also they come in, come from cultures where divorce is just really not allowed. Yeah, yeah so, so there's that. Uh, correlation does not always equal causation, everyone. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, sometimes it does just take time. You know, like, I, there are definitely different like, friendships that I've had that, like, the first, like, year or two of that, of that friendship was um, just, like, difficult. And I, perhaps I didn't really enjoy that person as much as... Especially in like in my younger years, where I didn't really care for them all that much, but then over time, you just like form a bond, and it's like, oh, like I really enjoy this person now. I think for spouse, it's it's that's where you can get. I don't know. I mean, I've never really been that spot where I'm like, I don't, I love my wife, but it's definitely there are times when I'm like, oh, this is hard, and I found the most grace when I recommit myself to my marriage. So it's like it, it is my marriage that itself like saves my marriage because when I investing in it it gets better you know so yeah there are no books there are no outside things that can really help me out besides i mean there, there, there's stuff that can, that can give me good insights but first i have to commit to my marriage so you're saying the metaphysics of marriage itself yeah, yeah. becomes the key to mm-hmm. okay the other thing that i was thinking of i've had so I've, I've had people ask me this i don't love my husband how do i love my husband because i believe in vows i made vows but we don't love each other. We were, you know, to use the word from uh, Death Cab for Cutie, we're like brothers on a hotel bed, right? So how do we, how do I deal with that? You know, like, and that's incredibly difficult because it's not like they're not trying. It's like they're, they're done trying because they've tried and nothing's happened. You know? Do you think those, that is like, yeah. those marriages might not actually be valid. Like the grace might not really be there. I don't know because I don't believe in magic. I don't yeah, believe true, that true. it just 
you know, the only reason why it's not that because it wasn't sacramental. If you would have had those graces, like, uh, here's the interesting thing. I was listening to this Protestant pastor named, um, oh, I forget, but he was saying how he was in a miserable Francis Cho. Let's just, let's just go. Chan, no, he was in a miserable marriage and he just thought it was like married to this woman for like seven years. And he was just like, okay, so this is, this is just what it is. I'm just going to be in this horrible, loveless marriage. And I have to deal with that because I'm, you know, I'm, I made a commitment for life. And, uh, and the whole time he was praying that she would get her act together. And she was praying that he would get his act together. And neither of them were really praying for each other. Um, mm. but that said, uh, yeah, so I so this woman came to me and she's just like, "What do I do? What do I do? I don't love him, you know, but we're married." And so I said, "Well, what is your prayer life like?" And she's like, "I used to pray for this all the time, but I don't anymore because nothing's ever happened." So, you know, rededicating to prayer, exploring the the wounds and the hurts in the relationship. But the other thing is this person wrote like not like any relationship, right? Anyone. The other thing was I was talking with a caregiver of a mom who had an autistic child. And in this particular case, it was, you know, non-communicative. And she was like, I know, like, it's, it's just so hard to never hear your child say, I love you, mommy, mm. you know, in any way, shape, or form. And to to give and give and do so much and to not, like, have that experience back. But she said something beautiful. She said, so now now I know the very heart of the cross, like, to me, to be a parent of a kid who can't, not that he doesn't want to, though, that's the difference, but not that he doesn't want to, but he, he just cannot express his love in any way, shape, or form. Zero emotional, you know, kind of ability to connect with others. And so, um, but that's like, you know, a huge difficulty that she has to deal with in her life. Um, I just think that would be so hard. And the only thing I told her, the only advice I had to give her was, like, as a caregiver, you have to find, like, you have you have to be fed. You can't just keep doing this on your own. And she agreed, but I don't know. No, it's really difficult to give and not count the cost. Like, to, like to really do that. You know, to re like, um, it kind of reminds me a bit of this thing that, like, Ratzinger talks about i, I was like that like benedict I don't, I don't remember who he was when he did that anywho um about how like really the church is actually a very small group that is for everyone and the greatest example that is christ on the cross um one man with his mom one of his followers and a few others that's the church at that moment of time that's that's it and really, you know, and, and Christ on the on the cross alone, practically, but with his arms open, truly for all of humanity that was and and was to come, and you know, and now is is to come. And I think that's when we look at like love, that's what real, that's what like that's that's what it is. Like from like really from a from like a small group for something much like bigger than that. And so I think a good example of that is just um, whoever this person is, like, like, like wherever you are in, you, in your life right now, um, can you be completely for this person 
not only just on your own, because like, but I think Christ can give you the strength to do that. It's, it's going to be difficult. Uh, I think it can be done, but it's very, very difficult. Can you be completely for another person, knowing that like you're not going to have the backing, the support, the um, reciprocity? Uh, yes, yes. Thank you. I was trying to find the right word that you should have. Or that you or that you like deserve. You know the book that you just referenced is Cardinal Ratzinger's um, "The Meaning of Christian Brotherhood," which I'm reading right now, and uh, I'm reading it very slowly and going back to it. It's a short book. I recommend everyone read it. He just analyzes the notion of brotherhood in the Old Testament, how it's your co-religionist and you know your ethnic compatriot, right? And uh, he said that's who your brother is, and that's who your neighbor is. Same thing. He said, and then he goes through the ancient Greeks, you know, like the Stoics believed kind of in a more universal brotherhood, and the Enlightenment had an ideal of Enlightenment brotherhood, and Marxism has a, an opposition brotherhood of, you know, either you belong to the proletariat or you are in total opposition to the proletariat as a capitalist or whatever. And uh, it's really fascinating when you hear this stuff because the the reality is you can't have insiders without also creating outsiders and he says this is just as true of christianity as it is marxism as it is um you know modern liberalism and all this stuff we always create insiders and outsiders we're just fools when we don't acknowledge that when you talk about that position of standing and loving yes you have a few insiders but the position towards the outsiders that's different in christianity is self-sacrifice he says within christianity we have brotherly love but to those on the outside, we can only have agape. Like, you're not allowed to have a different type of love. It's self-sacrificial love for those on the outside. And I just found that so powerful and so deeply meaningful and convicting. Like, that's kind of like what Shane Claiborne does. Like, that's like his claim to fame. Like, poor, tired, hurting, I love you. You know, I'll sacrifice my comfort for your, for, for, to comfort you. But then you look at it from this perspective. How many people, and I've heard it dozens of times in the last two, three weeks of the whole McCarrick thing afterwards, of quoting Ratzinger about a smaller but purer church. Mm -hmm. And how many people think that they're the ones that he's talking about will be in that church? And yet, how many people are sacrificial to those who would sacrifice themselves for outsiders? You know what I mean? Like, St. Paul says when he talks about in Romans nine about his own Jewish compatriots who refuse to accept Christ, he says, if I could be accursed so that they could be included, I'd do it. You know, if I could be cut off so that they could belong to God's plan, like I would do that right now. That is that self-sacrificial love that he's talking about. And I think that a lot of people think like, Oh yeah, a smaller, but pure church. I'm in that club because of X, Y, and Z reasons. And I just get afraid when those reasons are very external. I just find that there are a lot of people who don't put the main thing as the main thing. Yet they think they're this elite inner class. And I would put myself in that very group of people who think that about themselves. Um, yeah. So that smaller but pure thing is just as much a, uh, a call to wake the hell up for ourselves as it is for the church today. I think it's good. It's 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 really it's, so. It's an interview he gave back in the nineteen um, sixties, uh, and he says it's purely hypothetical. And, the, and and he like also says it doesn't have to be this way. God has a tendency to um, surprise us 
throughout all of like you know history. So it's I don't know if he's like prophesizing as much as he's just giving a hypothetical. Um, yeah. So the smaller but pure, yeah, was that. But it, it's there's a big part of his um, theology that is based on what's called vicarious representation. And vicarious representation is essentially one person can stand in the place for the many, mm-hmm. right? And that's obviously, you can tell how important that is in Christian theology, but it's even it's just as important in Jewish theology of uh, Israel. Israel was supposed to be the firstborn, the eldest son of God, you know, among the nations, right? And you have them failing in their vocation, which is kind of basically... If you look in the book of Genesis, Moses more or less lays this out because every firstborn son except for Noah and, crap, I don't know, Abraham probably, is a failure, right? you got Cain and all these others. They're all horrible firstborn sons. And so um, methinks Moses might have been trying to tell us something there. Father Christopher Cuddy, who I was, was at Franciscan with us, he's a Dominican now, he wrote this whole piece on... Pope Francis, smaller but pure, and defending it from this place of vicarious atonement or vicarious representation, how Jesus represents the one, or as the one, for the many. And it's that preposition for that matters, that means everything, because Mm -hmm. without that for, it becomes exclusive and cut off. But with that for, even if it's a small band, you know, him, his mom, his beloved disciple, or whatever it is, or just him alone or whatever— there's still a, uh, the orientation is to the many, it's to the world, right? It's to salvation of the world, Mm -hmm. the proper understanding of world in the Catholic context, right? Mm -hmm. Not the evil understanding St. Paul talks about more often, but the Johannine world of just the theater of God's dramatic action to save it, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's that vicarious representation that changes everything because then the church is for the world in the same way that Christ was for the church. We are called to be self-sacrificial. And so you can't understand Ratzinger or Pope Benedict's theology unless you, like, really understand that. Yeah. Scott Hahn's group, um, his article, or his um, uh, St. Paul Publishing, whatever it's called, they publish, they republish Ratzinger's original Vicarious Atonement article. And it's, it's really good, but Father Chris Cuddy's is better because it summarizes thought from years and years and years and years and years across tons of lines. But he doesn't, I don't think he quotes the meaning of Christian brotherhood, which to me is the most important thing to, to quote in Ratzinger's theology, but whatever. I'm just one man. What can I do? Yeah. Like really? I, I yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. Like that idea of like, just through like four, uh, F O R that is Ratzinger's whole thing. Like, especially the, and really to, like not a person who is getting his PhD, like in like Ratzinger S stuff kind of say to really understand him. You have to understand all, and not in like a cliche way, but like what you are getting at. It all goes back to Jesus Christ. Yeah, like it all. It truly all goes back to the person of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? Like, is this real? And what does it mean? I think it's you know. Yeah. And um, I think his kind of answer is you're right. It, it ultimately is in the word for f f o r. So. Yeah, so the the other book that I was going to say um, in that first question instead of Jesus of Nazareth was going to be Introduction to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Because in that book of Ratzinger's, he describes what's called the pro-existence of the Logos, which is essentially this notion of existence for others. Pro-existence, pro in Latin meaning for, right? Um, for others. And why that is so important, he, he, he talks about, like, well, what is a word? Like, why is he called the word 
a word is something spoken to another. It is essentially other oriented. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and once you understand that, then the mission of Jesus becomes clear that of course he is the one that the father sends for the salvation of the world because he is both for the father, right? And he's for humanity. Mm-hmm. And so he has this pro existence. And so um, when I was reading that, and then he applies that to the nature of the church, right? And once you apply it to the nature of the church, it is just freaking amazing <laughs> because then that means we have to be for others. This is honestly how deep it goes for Ratzinger. This is a paragraph I read that was attributed to him. So his critique of rock and roll, where he's basically saying it's more about my emotions and the experience of my emotions as opposed to some outside beauty. And it was really interesting because I don't think he's just – it really, to be honest, like challenged me. And made me think, holy crap! Like, because I, I, I still, I'm not saying that um, that like rock and roll is bad or anything like that, or like rock music is bad. And I think he's saying that, but I don't. But I think it's more just like his opinion, um, as opposed to like you know, it's like the work of the devil. I think it's, he's, he's more just saying it's an experience of, as opposed to other like, as, as opposed to other types like music, which are just so beautiful in and of the, in and of the, in and of the, themselves. And it draws the person out of him, out of himself, into this thing. Rock, like what, like what, like rock music does by just its very like nature, is it turns the person inwards. Yeah, to their own subjective states of emotional yeah. response. Yeah, I mean, it's all about the emotional. Yeah, response. yes, as opposed to um, because you can hear like, and it's it's not that it's not that emotion in like music is bad or anything like that. That can. No, but it should be tied to something other than the emotion. Itself. Yeah, yeah, and when it's you know there, that's the interesting point about medieval music is that medieval music you couldn't listen to it and know oh this is the sad part. You couldn't do that with medieval music. You had to know the lyrics and the music together. In the Middle Ages or in the Renaissance period and, and later, music itself conveyed the meaning and, and mood and all that stuff. I found when I read that, I can't remember where I read that. Um, I found that to be so fascinating. They're like, and I, I think there really is something about like. I mean, it's 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 why we like praise music. Like we, we say, it's it's what emotions what they sound like. You know, that's that's kind of like one of the more uh, modern definitions of like of like music. Like we hear a song and it like, you know, it, there's a song by like. Butch Walker that I just, you know, adore with, like, him and Pink. And I'm like, that's what a breakup feels like. I think you're thinking of Butch Cassidy. No, Butch Walker. He's phenomenal. You know, and, and there's something, um, like, is it good to constantly be reminded of it? Like, like there's, a, there's a thing about it where it's good to, I think, to, like, I don't know. This is, I mean, I really, I really, I'm wrestling with this. Like, is it good to be reminded of that? Because am I just going, why should I relive breakups? Yeah, that, like th- what you were saying is so right on the money. We can play music connected to emotional states, and it redraws up those exact emotional states. But why do we want to do that when those emotional states are bad, right? Shouldn't we let yeah, or- the events around us and actual living life create those states, you know? Yeah, and and, and it's – yeah, I mean, so, so I was getting ready today, and I was um, – in, in, like in, in the shower as I do, Ooh, go on. And there was a song that came on by B- 
by Ocean's Avenue. I'm sorry, Ocean Avenue. Holy crap, I'm getting old. By Yellow Card from their album Ocean's Avenue. Oh my gosh, that just happened. Holy crap, everyone. I'm turning into my father. Holy crap. Okay, so anyway, it's called um, Teen Life. <laughs> um, you know what you need? Relational ministry. That's what you got to do to get the kids back. And by um, relational ministry, I mean pizza parties. Sorry, go on. <laughs> they like good music and fun stuff like balloons. Um, and it it just like took me back to a specific period i can even tell you the period spring to 2005 it just brought me back to that time of my life and there's part of me that that like kind of wonders like is that good because it's pulling me away from now but you know like what's like what's the opportunity cost of that yeah man i worry about this stuff See, this is the thing. Imagine, imagine it's a hundred years ago. If you wanted to feel sad because of a song, you had to play it. You had to be around other people doing the song, right? Or you had to play it yourself. Mm-hmm. It, it, and, and it had to be an experience of like something concrete that was outside of you. I mean, but yeah, but just think like today, we every sad song we can just play. Yeah. We were merely freshmen. Oh, the life of me, I cannot remember. I mean, I, it's, 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 it's like weird, right? Because I think there's, there. so, like, back in 2014, I think, one of our good friends got, like, got married. And, all and like, us and the other two guys that we are, like, best friends with from school all stayed at, like, your house. And we played, like, drinking games that we used to play. Yeah. And we made a playlist with all the songs we liked back in like 2002. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect day. And yeah. <laughs> greatest day ever. <laughs> Completely undercuts everything we were just talking about. Greatest day. Ever. <laughs> no, but <laughs> Yes, I'm sorry. Go on. You're saying it was the absolute best. Um <laughs> there's something good about that also. Like like yeah. that was a really it was just fun, it's a good, you know, we're just hanging out. But what happens when you can do that every day? It's emotional manipulation. Yeah, as as opposed to real beauty like i won't ever um i won't ever forget when i heard our buddy dave when he recorded his album when i heard the first song i think it was just like an unmastered track and his voice and everything it sounded because dave has one of the best voices i've ever heard yeah it sounded so good like it was just beautiful and then like when we hit stop all american rejects came on and it was that song that was really big at the time and i love that song that swing swing you know whatever and i heard it and it just sounded so stupid and cheesy and dumb yeah and that 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 <laughs> that really um immediate contrast like shook me and i could never hear that song again in the same way because i'm like i was like this really isn't that good <laughs> you know like it just it was it was like having the best food i'd ever had and then having like a big mac and be like well, this sucks yeah is this food it tastes like cardboard yeah like I, so that's that's actually one of the reasons why I'm, I'm trying to listen to more classical because I want to um, – because it kind of demands um, something out of you, I think, a little bit more than, a, than, a, than – and once you start to really kind of get, like, what they're, what they're doing, then you can kind of get to some of the emotional parts, which are – but it's a different kind of emotional thing because it's not about you. So, yeah, man, it's, it's – I think it's really important to like think about those about those things. 
that being said, take me away, Ace of Base. Take me away. I saw the sign, and it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. Life is demanding without understanding. I saw the sign. You opened up my eyes. We are really Swedish. Best coffee brand to spill on your keyboard. Two things, my friend. Number one, Texas Pecan from H-E-B or Guadalupe Roasters. Hey, and they have a code. They have a code. They have a code. They have a code. For, for us? us? Yes. There's a code that you can use to get uh, to get on a 15% off. Holy crap. What's that code? I didn't know that. Fine. Yes. If you want to save, if you want to save 15%, the code is FOX15, F-O-X-1-5, FOX15, will will save you 15% on a great bag of, of coffee from Guadalupe Roasters. Do you know how so how behind are, like are you in your work because of all uh, this? a solid two weeks a solid week yeah, a solid too. week no I'm a solid two weeks yeah it's awful easily I'm so behind Fox Fox fifteen GuadalupeRoastery.com say fifteen percent Gomer doesn't care about supporting our friends that's not true I only somewhat care. <laughs> That's not true. I marginally care. If there was one Catholic and or social tradition you would like to see revived, what would it be? Um, I would. Okay. I guess it was a thing back in the day for at Christmas time. You wouldn't decorate your tree till Christmas Eve. Yeah. I would really like, I think I would really like to see that. Now, I, now listen. Carrie's love a good Christmas, okay? We're obsessed with, like, Amy Grant. You have literally no idea how obsessed with Amy Grant we are. So, like, don't even try me, okay? So calm down, Emily. However, I do think there's something to, like, building up to the holiday and enjoying Advent as a preparation for Christmas and then going all out during the 10 days of Christmas. I think there's something really, like, so I kind of, so me and Aaron are going to kind of try that. Oh, I have some news as well, but I'll tell you in just a second. Um, we're going to kind of try that. So what about you? Uh, voting. That's a social tradition I'd like to see revived. <laughs> <laughs> I would like for Civic people to vote. engagement. Yeah, no, just voting. Just go to, just physically go to the polls. Eventually you'll start paying attention. Okay, here's the thing. Who isn't voting? And like I kind of like because like everyone I know votes, and I'm, this is not a weird con- this is not a weird conspiracy thing. There are clearly people who don't vote. Just like there are people who don't watch the Super Bowl, and that blows my mind. <laughs> who isn't voting? Like if you don't vote, could you like email us and tell us why? I want to. Why why are people voting? <laughs> well, it makes no sense. It's true. If you could recommend one piece of fiction, this comes from my boy Kevin Fenner. If you could re- recommend one piece of fiction to someone, what would it be? Um, really, I'm there's a really good book that I'm currently reading right now called I think it's The Name of the Wind, and I'm really enjoying that. It's um, it, it is a fantasy book. I think you're thinking of Paint with All the Colors of the Wind. It's Pocahontas. Pocahontas. Uh, oh man, I thought she was so attractive when I was a kid. Uh, she is because she's a real person. And she's my wife, and I love her. And her nickname is Pocahontas because she's so cute. <laughs> Your wife is a blonde-haired a woman from St. Louis. <laughs> so is Pocahontas. 
I think we're thinking of two different people. <laughs> Your wife is a white German Irish woman, a Kraut okay, Mick. Who loves NASCAR. I'm pretty sure she's not Pocahontas. Could be Damn wrong. I was way off. You know, I went to school in Oklahoma, and there was a girl whose nickname was Pocahontas, and she was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I said it. Mm. One piece mm. of fiction, you would say, what is it? Paint with the Colors of the Wind? The Name of the Wind. I'm really enjoying that book. The name of the, the first 100 pages are a little bit rough, but then after that, it gets real good. Oh, man. Um, one piece of fiction. Listen, I'm not going to go all fancy on you guys. I'm going to tell you the most important and hilarious piece of science fiction I have read lately. So I'm qualifying it. Columbus Day from Expeditionary Force series. It is hysterical, and you just have to embrace it. It's crazy. A talking beer can makes it halfway through the book. It is awesome. The audiobook is superbly read, so I own all the Kindle editions, and I own the audiobooks because the audiobooks mm-hmm. are perfect. R.C. Bray does the reading. Amazing. So I would say read Columbus Day. It's book one of the series. I turned um, Bob uh, Rice onto it. He's a big science fiction fan. And I said, you should read this. And he said, I don't know. And I said, just trust me. And he's like, oh, my gosh, Expedition A4s. Skippy the beer can is amazing. It's not really a beer can. It's a computer. Skippy the beer can is amazing. I love it. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, now every time a new book comes out, we have to email each other. <laughs> I really like Bob Rice. He's a good guy. And speaking of Bob, the Bobiverse, also a good book trilogy. He's a little anti-religion in the beginning, but it smooths itself out. Because I can't tell my Bob Rice story now. Nope. Uh oh, okay. This is interesting. This is interesting. Most overplayed praise and worship songs. Oceans. False. Reckless love. How does that go again? Oh gosh, I can't even. I don't go to a lot of praise and worship things, man. So, which Protestant leader would you most like to convert? Uh, good. Ooh, okay. Let me. Th- oh, that's a good question. Have you um, seen John Christ's uh, pastor? fantasy league thing have you seen that video what? it is so fun you know john christ is that evangelical dude who's a comedian he's the yeah. one that did yeah yeah well he just came out with a like a fantasy football draft but for pastors and it is so funny especially if you oh, actually know the awesome. people he's talking about which i don't know if many catholics would but uh at the end they they don't take pastors they take things parts of them so it's like I'll take the racial ambiguity ambiguity of Francis Chan, uh, and boom, the Twitter followers of Pope Francis. And it's like, he's Catholic. You can't pick him. Rules. It's so funny. It okay, is. So who it who is. would you want to – right now, who would you want to convert? Mm. Uh, That's a really great question. It is a great question because um, – uh, so I have my – okay, here's my top three. Ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis Chan, because of his radical living out the gospel, I think, I think if if he taught courses on homiletics, the church the church would be revived overnight. Uh, I love the way the man preaches. He's so intense and emotional. Like, good guys, you just you just gotta read the word of God. It's in here. It's real, and he just loves you. And I'm like, God, he just loves you. That's how he talks all the time, and I love it. Um, Francis Chan. Uh, Rick Warren for the reach. I mean, Rick Warren is a, you know, love him or hate him. He's big news. He's big, big deal. But I think my heart would have to be N.T. Wright, Anglican theologian. Mm. 
Yeah. I've been reading so much of his stuff lately, and I watch a bunch of his YouTube videos, and I feel he's had to offer up defenses of why his works don't make people Catholic. Like, he personally is very much a child of the Reformation. Um, but because he's an Anglican, there's this funny middle ground that they kind of hover in. And because he's a bishop, he was a bishop, you know, there's this high church, low church, not a Protestant, but is reformed. Like, he doesn't call himself Protestant. He uses the word reformed. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, son of the Reformation or whatever, like, colloquialisms he uses. But, yeah, man, that'd be cool. What about you? I'm going to bend the rules a little bit for mine. I'm going to include Reese Roper in this, just uh, from the band Five Iron Frenzy. <laughs> I just think uh, he's so close. And his writing, I can see it. He's so close. I'm like, oh, I want this for you so badly. Um, I'm scared to have him on, man, because I just don't want to ruin it. Yeah. Uh, two, uh, really, to be honest with you, the bad Christian guys, I just fear for their souls. Um, <laughs> After having him I'm on, like, I realized Pastor Joey should really be ex-Pastor Joey. <laughs> <laughs> do I mean, wait, do you like? I really think that? Yeah, I, I would hate if he's my pastor. Yeah. Hey, guys, I'm not really sure what I believe anymore, but I know Jesus is important. How important? Pretty much, maybe. <laughs> like, that's what I feel like. Like, so much of what yeah. he said and when it comes to theology is like, it's all, it's sola scriptura, and I don't trust scripture anymore, so zoink. Like, that, that's what I <laughs> Right, and he's like, and you know what I love about my the head pastor of my church is he's okay wrestling with ambiguity. You know, he doesn't suffer from the sin of certainty, and I'm like, I understand what you mean by the sin of certainty, but it can only go so far before we are just yeah. lost in the morass of universal skepticism. You know that yeah. universal doubt cancels itself out. So we can't just hover in nothingness forever and call it being deep. Being deep. No, it's like, and it's, I'm really, with what's going on within Protestant culture right now is so like fascinating and kind of sad yeah. because you're seeing it all just fall apart. Like it's like American Protestantism, I really believe is like falling apart. Well, a, a, and, a certain type of American Protestantism. Right, so reformed, they're called, I hate this name, the young, restless, and reformed. That's a growing movement in the church today. Evangelicalism that is like hardcore in its Lutheran or more particular Calvinist background is, mm-hmm. in fact, growing. I, I can't really say by leaps and bounds anymore because secularism kind of dominates all. But, well, this one, like, don't you, sorry, yeah, yeah. but like, Sorry, I didn't mean to. Sorry, I just no, you're good, you're good. you off there. Like, but their influence and their place within the culture is not what it wants. Oh was. no, 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 no. Yeah, you're right. It's like, like that's 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 probably what I'm working like that. The like that was a huge part of it, of American culture. You know, it's funny. It was such a huge part that when I watch movies from the '90s, like you know, we're all joking, quoting you know, 1994, all that stuff. Like the the church was or the country was so religious in the '90s. You know, like Jurassic mm-hmm. Park even has to throw in quotes about God. You know, like, oh, we're playing God. We're all the, you know, and um, God God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man creates, man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Destroys God. Right? Like, like they, 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 like. They wouldn't make that joke now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not just that they wouldn't make that joke. It's, the, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have anywhere to go. It's that they couldn't make that as a yeah. joke. It's like. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when uh, they did Supersize Me, right? And he's going through showing kids like Ronald McDonald. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? The classic kindergartners. And they showed a picture of Jesus, and none of the kids knew who that guy was. And when you hear that they know corporate mascots more than they know Jesus Christ, you know that like something has happened in the 2000s that has permanently ended. I mean, it, it is gone. Like, the Christendom is so yeah. dead. Christendom is so dead. There was a powerful article that I read um, on uh, American Affairs Journal, and it's written by this guy, Kevin Gallagher, I think. And uh, it's, it's a long read. It's probably like, I don't know, five or 10,000 words. So it's a longer essay, but it's on the end of Catholic fusionism, which he basically presents as like the Catholic Church trying to appeal to classical liberals, so modern, you know, Republican conservatives, and trying to use and bend natural law to reflect the kind of rights language of John Locke and kind of the philosophical underpinnings of American society. And he's like, we stopped being Catholic. We started being more Lockean or, or more, you know, liberal in terms of classical liberalism. And he's like, and we, we you know, all the things, like firstthings.com. He's like, that's what we did. That's Catholic fusionism. You take elements of liberalism. You say, if you just bend these parts, it'll be Catholic and it'll be great. And we can have Catholic fusionism. And he's like, and that's a bankrupt philosophy. But that was so much of what, of what this whole kind of like ethos belongs. Like that is also dying right now in America. Yeah. And Protestantism was a part of it. I mean, first things was meant to be a mostly evangelical thing where it's Catholics, conservative Catholics and Protestants kind of coming together on these and Orthodox on social justice or social issues and politics. But that's all dying. One issue with, uh, I think what's going on right now within the church is people are trying to protect and, and, an institution that doesn't actually exist the way that they think it does. Yeah, the church doesn't have the place within within. And then, sorry, this is a little bit too broad, so it probably isn't true. But I, I think there's a little bit of it there, though, um, of people who think the church is really important. We need to we need to not cause uh, not cause scandal and risk the role of the church in our current culture and i think it's because of the thing that we have talked about before i don't think people really understand how you know irrelevant the church is within the, with within a modern american culture right right now i i, I really wish i could like because i think one thing about that is it really gets to i think what like balthasar was talking about we need to relearn what it means to be christian because when you have people coming to you you know that say I feel like I've been. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't. I've been gay my whole life, and they just say, "Well, Paul says you can't." So sorry. You know, like, like that's not a good enough answer. There's a uh, a, a Protestant preacher. I want to say he's Baptist. He looks like Jack Shepard from Lost. I can't remember his name right now, but he's crazy, and he is. Um, I want to say it was maybe the BBC did a documentary about him, and they asked him, like, well, what if, what, what should be the response of someone who says that they're homosexual? And he goes, oh, they should kill themselves. He's like, yeah, there is no hope for them. They should just, and she's like, well, what if they're born that way? So God created them that way, and he goes, doesn't matter. They should kill themselves. There's no hope for them. And you're like, wow. Wow. <laughs> oh, Lord of mercy. Yeah. And so that's, that's, that stuff's still out there, too. <laughs> you know? It's not all priests in Miami. I, 
<laughs> we haven't gone to that yet. Oh my god. The, the summer, summer of, of scandal. Scandal. 